This episode of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you by Lloyds Bank. With their Club Lloyds current account, you can now get 12 months of Disney Plus as your lifestyle benefit. To know me is to know that I love watching things on TV, so I am so excited to tell you about this. You might think that Disney Plus is just for Disney films. And yes, it's great for all of them. We must have watched Disney's Frozen at least 100 times by now. But it's so much more than that. With Disney Plus, there is endless entertainment with exclusive originals, brand new series, blockbuster movies. And it's just one of the great benefits that you can now get with a Club Lloyds account. I highly recommend watching The Bear if you haven't seen it yet. It's all about a talented chef who's presented with the challenge of overhauling his family sandwich shop. Season two is coming soon and I can't wait. Lloyds Bank are taking care of not only your banking needs, but entertainment too. Visit lloydsbank.com forward slash Club Lloyds to find out more. £3 monthly fee is charged to maintain the Club Lloyds account, but waived each month that you pay in £2,000 or more. UK residents, 18 and over, Disney Plus subscription required. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you very much to Lloyds Bank. Hi, I'm Margie Nomura and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island Dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. The question is, what would you choose as your last meal? Hi, I hope you're all very well. So you clicked on the podcast, so you already know who our guest is today. And I know, I know. Unsurprisingly, it was an absolute pleasure to speak to him. Whilst you may not necessarily equate being a supermodel with being a huge food fan, David definitely is, and there are some very delicious dishes in this one. We talk about his big break into the world of modeling, how he dreamt of becoming a vet, and how school wasn't the easiest time for him, which I always think is very reassuring and also very generous when people share that, as it just goes to show that lots of very successful people don't love their teenage years. His career has taken lots of very interesting routes and he's now an entrepreneur and founder with David Gandhi Wellware. So there's lots of good stuff in this one and I really hope you enjoy. Let us know what you think by leaving a review or find us on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes. That's more than enough waffling from me. I do hope you enjoyed today's episode brought to you in partnership with Lloyds Bank. Thank you so much for listening. My guest today is David Gandhi. After winning a televised modelling competition at the age of 21, he went on to become the world's first and most successful male supermodel. David's big break came in 2007 in the form of his first Dolce & Gabbana campaign, which saw him become a global sensation overnight, with the iconic image of him wearing tiny white trunks in a boat in Capri shot by Mario Testino, appeared on a 50-foot billboard in Times Square. He still fronts this Dolce & Gabbana light blue campaign today, as well as working with the biggest brands and names in the industry, from high fashion to high street. A style icon, a family man, a vintage car aficionado, and now founder of his own eponymous brand, David Gandhi Wellwear. His university housemate secretly entered a photo of him into a competition on this morning to win a modelling contract, and all these years later, things don't seem to be slowing down for him. Between modelling, being a father of two and his own line, he says he's always treated his career as a business and has learned his biggest lessons from supermodels such as Christy Turlington and Kate Moss. Despite the pressure to be in incredible shape, David has always said he eats a mix of foods and in moderation, and he spent lockdown whipping up delicious meals in his mother-in-law's big Le Creuset pot. Welcome, David. Thank you. That's a lovely introduction. <laughs> no, it's such a pleasure to have you on Desert Island Dishes. You said that your parents educated you and your sister through travel. Mm. You've been to the Galapagos Islands, mm. trekked to see the gorillas in Uganda, been to Alaska to see brown bears. So surely, I'm thinking, a desert island should be next on the list. Yeah, I suppose we, we have been on desert islands as well. Um, we, we, we did when we went to Borneo. It was very rough and ready. It was literally some huts on the beach and we saw, um, it was where the, the um, giant sea turtles come up and they lay their eggs. And if you go during a certain season, all the eggs, the little turtles come up through the sand. Um, and weirdly, they follow wherever the moonlight is. So you have to, you're not allowed to 
But yeah, you were allowed to help them, like sort of help them out into the sea, but you all have to stand there with torches so they think it's moonlight and then they follow you towards the sea. We have done Desert Island and okay. uh, yeah, I suppose we're very, very, very fortunate, of course, to have done that. You've said that in typical teenager fashion, you didn't realise quite how lucky you were to do so much travelling at a mm. young age. Do you think travelling is a really important part of finding out who you are? Um, I think it's an important part of getting out of your comfort zone and, and uh, discovering um, a world that is different to your own where you can kind of get comfortable within that. And I think you can teach people about different cultures and races and um, how other people live, but until you actually witness it yourself. And because uh, we live in our little bubble, especially London, so yeah, that that is how my parents sort of educated us. It puts a lot of things into context as well. Mm. You know, we've been to uh, more poor areas, um, more developing areas, and you know, Africa. When we went to go and trek for uh, gorilla, um, you have to leave at half four, half five in the morning, and uh, start trekking through. And and you come across a school in the middle of Uganda, and the kids have been walking for an hour and a half themselves, and uh, they don't have anything. And they are the happiest children you will ever meet in your life. <laughs> and uh, it's quite fascinating to see. And you then realise it's not about sort of things you own or, or what you have or brands or anything else that we're all obsessed about. And I'm especially with myself in the fashion industry. Um, they had nothing, but they were so, so happy, mm. of course. So, yeah, it puts a lot of things into perspective sometimes. And so is that going to be something that's going to be important to you to do with your own children? I think so, yeah. <clears throat> I love animals. I mean, the the way sort of we did it as a family, uh, there was always discovering of an, or searching for an animal. Mm. So like Galapagos Islands, it was George, it was the blue-fitted boobers, it, it was the iguanas. <laughs> We then went to Borneo for the orangutans, uh, the gorillas in Uganda, you know, South Africa, Africa, Namibia was all the elephants and the big five. So, yeah, I'm, I'm obsessed with animals and I, love, I think my daughters will be the same as well. Yeah, my daughter can go, Daddy, that's a hammerhead shark and that's oh. a great white shark and that's a tiger shark. I'm like, good, we've got that down. So I can't wait for them to be to a certain age when they are. They can appreciate that. You have to get the right age when you can appreciate that in, in many ways. At the moment, they, they, they just like going to a petting farm. Yeah, they're a bit... Feeding sad. a goat is, is exciting still at the moment. And uh, Relish that while you can. Yeah, no, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Let's go straight into the first Desert Island dish, and that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood. So going back to travel, when we came back from travelling, because we were we lived close to my grandparents, so we would go... Um, because we were all jet-lagged and we all got back and uh, from travels. Then we would go to my grandmother's and she would make her roast dinner. Mm. Um, and this is an old-fashioned roast dinner. It was with lard and goose fat and just sublime. Like, it was... It was I, I wish I could have one still, like, to this day. One of my things I'm quite persistent on is good roast potatoes now because mm. they were the best roast potatoes and well-cooked meat. That was... I always sort of remember that. And... Um, yeah, I mean, my, my parents were, they weren't strict on stuff we sort of had. They were, up until a certain age, a bit like I suppose we all do with our children. In some ways, it's like, what do you, what can you get into them without having a hissy fit about? Yeah. You know? <laughs> so I kind of just remember school. I just remember alpha bites a lot. Then we all sat down and, and had dinner always together. Um, and it was always, you know, a lot of vegetables and meat and two vegetables and potatoes and then my mum would get a bit more exotic and the other stuff would try. I remember once we had a heart, a whole heart. <gasps> uh, my sister nearly fainted. <laughs> I wasn't quite sure what to do with it. Um, oh my goodness, that's quite intense. How it old was were quite you then? Intense. I don't, I, goodness, I think, I think that was only a one-time thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was quite, it was quite strange. My mum's my a great cook though and I, you know, just I inhale food. My mum said as a baby I did two things, was either sleep or wake up and eat and that was about it. <laughs> the dream baby, that's ideal. Yeah, that's what you want um, in a baby. And I just loved food and still do. You know, I, I, that is a highlight for me. I go to a restaurant for the food, not because of the ambience or to being in a restaurant. And this could be a tiny little Italian we go to somewhere. But I know the pasta will be absolutely incredible. Mm. It doesn't matter who's there or what it looks like or anything mm. else. So, um, yeah, that's so yeah. often the way, isn't it? <clears throat> it is. It really, really the way, yeah. So you began lifting weights at the age of 16, around the time that you were being picked on at school. And I think that was due to being well-spoken, which was something that your father insisted on. You say that you kept this a secret from your parents and you sought sanctuary in the school library. 
Did you enjoy being a teenager or was it purely quite a difficult time? I'm not sure if anyone enjoys being a teenager if they actually go back and going through puberty and thinking about yeah. it. So it's a, it's a tough stage. It's horrendous. Uh, there's a lot of hormones <laughs> flying around and uh, school is a school. Children are children. I mention it because I feel like if there's anyone going through it, if there's any children going through it, they should know that other people have gone through it. Mm. You know, so it's not like playing the victim at all. It was just what happened during that time. Yeah. And yeah, I yeah took solace in the uh, at my little sandwiches in the library and read James Herriot books. So I was always a bit of a uh, a loner anyway, in in many ways, and still am. Like I, I'm quite a solitary person, so uh, nothing's really changed there. No. I think that's a very generous thing to be who you are and be very successful and talk about that time because, like you say, I think if someone's going through that now or their children are, mm-hmm. I think that can give someone a lot of hope because whatever you're going through in that moment feels like it's going to be forever, but that obviously no, is not no. true. Winston Churchill always said, if you're going through hell, then just keep going. You don't yeah. stop. It will end and it will get better and actually probably, you know, you'll be stronger for it mm. in many ways. Being so publicly successful, I wonder what the bullies think now. Have you ever heard from any of them? I don't go back to where I grew up that often. My parents moved uh, at the same time as I really moved up to London, So, I, but my friends are still there. Some, some of them I've known since I was two or three. Um, so, of course, I go back and visit. Yeah, I mean, many, many years ago when we went out, there was, uh, there was a couple of the guys that used to... Uh, um, pick on me a little bit and of course they they changed their tune a little bit and um, I bet they did yeah didn't want any sort of revenge or mm. pick on them or anything else it was I treated them how I treated them which was politeness and yeah how are you and, and got on with it kind of thing so uh, yeah the, the way to be anyone the way to shut people off is is, is to be successful mm. in whatever you deem to be successful but that's yeah. basically it that's how you you are above those people. That's a good ways. motivator. I'm not sure everyone would be that gracious meeting school bullies <laughs> that many years later. But, but a, lot of, like you know, a lot of it isn't like when people think of bullying, they think of like a physical bullying. And it, 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 a lot of it wasn't. A lot of it was, um, as you know, sort of manipulation and mental bullying and just sort of being sort of picked on in a mental sense, So, uh, which is sometimes worse yeah, in many, horrendous. many ways. It's uh, yeah, quite, quite difficult. Mm. But um, people make mistakes and uh, we, we all do. And as long as those guys realised, hopefully it wasn't the best thing to do. And they probably grew up and may have realised that, may have not. Yeah. Um, but as long as you learn from it, everyone <laughs> makes mistakes, of course. You've said that becoming a dad has transformed your life in a way that you couldn't really imagine before and that we're now really in the first generation without clearly defined roles in terms of parenting. So Mm. I think you've said that your role is to cook, you love flowers, you're in charge of dressing the kids. And you've said that your dad wasn't really one to show emotion, as I think a lot of dads in that generation were. Do you think that that has had a real impact on the way that you now choose to parent? No one knows how to parent in many ways. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You are learning on the job. Um, You have your parents as a reference to try and not make the same mistakes. You probably will. But the times are very, very different. And, uh, you know, my dad um, and mum really, but dad really had a very impoverished background, brought up by a single parent. My mum and dad didn't have much. They built their businesses up and they got more and more successful. Um, But doing that means they, especially dad, uh, was in the office away a lot. Um, So, and that was, you understand that as a dad, you know, you you try and have to get that balance right. And sometimes I, I am in a, in a, position that I put myself being slightly older dad and where I can control um, I'm not dictated to where I have to be at any time at any place I dictate the whole thing so I can be around for my children as much as I can and yeah it's a complete sharing sort of 50 50 with my partner Steph it's um, when she's working she's a barrister and you very rarely get much time uh, noticed to where you are and I have to step in and same time she has to do the same with me so um yeah, it's, yeah, just sharing. It's a complete partnership at the end of the day. So I have to list. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the roles are reversed. Steph doesn't cook, I cook. We both dress the kids. We're, you know, all those different things that those, you know, those roles that, that were defined. My, you know, my mum cooked and my, you know, you know, dad did the finances and, you know, my dad closes a kitchen door. He thinks he's helping out in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my dad couldn't cook a bit of toast. I really couldn't. Yeah. Like, and they never was... changed nappies, that generation. No, and the nappies in those generations were proper nappies as well. Yeah, they weren't yeah. easy things of, like, pull-up pants <laughs> like we have now. Um, so I'm not surprised they, they didn't want to do it. So, 
yeah, it it changes, and I've got dads who are the same, uh, friends who are the same age as dads, and um, you know, it's uh, I think they're called dustbins now, aren't they? Like if you are still making the money and still the breadwinner and everything else, but you you can't just do that anymore. You have to collect them from nursery and take them to nursery and dress them and cook and yeah. everything else. It's it's uh, very obvious the days where my husband has been in charge of dressing with girls, <laughs> but I feel like with you, David, I would trust you. I like. wouldn't sometimes. I, I, yeah, I have I, 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 a few mornings where I've got leggings and pajama bottoms mixed up. Like they, look, they looked the same as the leggings. They had unicorns. They were rainbow. I don't think anyone noticed. Let's talk about the second desert island dish. And that's the first dish that you learned to cook. I, I was fascinated by my grandmother and mother cooking. So I think that's where you've always probably first learned. But the, but the first one I, I knew that I wanted to perfect, and I, and I always remember this because it took me so long, was just a great Pomodoro, mm-hmm. just a pasta. And we didn't eat much pasta as a family. But when we went to Italy, we went to Italy a lot on holiday. And I just remember this, um, it, it was like I'd never tasted this. But you, we don't have those pasta sauces and it's on those fresh ingredients and the right amount of garlic and salt and, and uh, al dente pasta. And it's weird, like I can make you know, something for my daughter and we went to Capri, she came with us and she had this huge bowl of the most al dente pomodoro ate the whole thing. And I was like, that's what I used to do. So I, I just tried to perfect it and, and it took years of me trying to, with the right tomatoes and get the pasta right. And, and that's the first one. I thought that's a really good dish to learn. And I still make it today. I make a, Steph loves a, a spicy version like an arrabbiata. So I then sort of, I say perfect it. I chucked some chili flakes in it. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> it didn't take much. So yeah, that, I remember that sort of in my, my kind of like first dish. I had to kind of get experiment to get right. Mm. And uh, yeah, it's always a good staple really. Yeah. And the first time you learn that if you use really great ingredients, Fresh like, ingredients. yeah, <clears throat> then really very, what very you true. have to do to it is so yeah. minimal. And, and you don't realise that in this country, you know, it makes me laugh. So I say sort of get tomatoes and people buy those, and I think they're just called salad tomatoes. Yeah, and they're just kind of slightly so hard, tasteless very watery tomatoes mm. and you're just almost like, like a no. sponge when you cut into Ab- them absolutely yeah. and then you just realize <laughs> no you're going for you know the italian tomatoes or the spanish tomatoes and uh, yeah it makes such a big difference yeah at school you said that you did okay but that your grades weren't good enough to get you onto a vet course as you'd hoped instead you say that all you learned from university was that you should never have gone and at an age when you could have been traveling the world you were questioning why you were studying marketing in Gloucestershire Mm. what was it about being a vet that appealed to you so much the same thing as now when I, when I sort of go to being an ambassador for Battersea, Dogs Home and Wild at Heart. I loved animals. It, 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 it wouldn't have been work. It, it, it's a passion. If you can make money by working in your passion, then it's not work. Mm. Um, and just that idea of helping people but helping their pets, something innocent in, in an animal and children. They can't often tell you what is wrong. You have to work, you know, work it out. Yeah, would have would have absolutely loved to have done that, but um, was so far off getting any sort of grades that could have got me there. It was uh, <laughs> it was a pipe dream. Yeah, because like I was thinking that when I was reading it and with the work that you do with Battersea and Wild at Heart, it's so funny how there are so many different routes to end up in a similar sort of been, yeah. place, mm-hmm. isn't it? Very, very true. Yeah, and I suppose that's. Um, you know, when you get to a, a certain level of success within fashion or the industry I am in, in anything is that people would expect that your successes and you are buying cars and watches and traveling and everything else. And mine was, how can I get back to that passion that was my true? And cars are one of my passions. Yeah. Um, but animals was the biggest one. I, I worked in a, an animal century, uh, really a dog century when I was 15. My mum used to drop me off and I worked there for free every Saturday. So I still had that passion of just wanting to help. But I still see the vets there, you know, the vets, one of the biggest, most accomplished sort of veterinary centres in, in Europe now at Battersea. And just to have that expertise of helping that animal and working out what is wrong. And yeah, I'm still slightly envious yeah. of being able to do that, to be honest. Let's pause there and talk about the third desert island dish. Mm-hmm. David, what is the best dish you've ever eaten? See, this is such a hard question. <laughs> um, we were shooting in New England once and they just brought in um, razor clams and lobster and it was fresh and they cooked it right there in front of us and it was just the freshest seafoods and it was the greatest location and it was just butter. They literally melted butter like they do when you were dipping it. That we literally was coming out cooking, taking out, and it was—it wasn't anything that I haven't had before. But it was just a great crew, an incredible location. It was absolutely delicious. We were in Cuba once and um, shooting, and 
Yeah, they would come up to you and say, what would you like for lunch? Uh, grilled prawns or lobster? And they would go out and catch it, <gasps> at, like going fresh. And it was, to Cuba still is, was a very poor country. This would be so expensive to go and getting another, you know, in, in England or you know, in parts of the United States. But they were literally going out, grabbing a thing and bringing it back. It was, it was extraordinary. Sat on the beach, barbecued. It's, again, nothing we haven't had before. It wasn't any more tasty than I've had anywhere else, but it was just that location, just mm. that time. There was a unique experience. Um, recently, I probably had one of the most tastiest things. We were um, in the lakes and uh, we were working with uh, Reva Boats and they have a Reva restaurant. You go out in this beautiful Reva and um, you go into their restaurant, which is on an island in, in one of the lakes. And they and I couldn't work out how they did it. I was still trying to work out, but they... It was a boiled potato. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds very, very strange, but like a peeled boiled potato. <laughs> and as you sort of cut into it, uh, it's got like a, a, a very small bottle of like Italian truffle, white truffle sauce. And when you cut into it, there's an egg yolk perfectly cooked in mm. the middle of the potato. And just that, uh, it was. it's very simple how they got the egg yolk. I I've, I've still like, I asked yeah. a couple of chefs and they said, and they've looked into it and said, we think they inject into it. I said, no, no, it was a whole egg yolk because you still had to slide. But it was warm. It was one of the best things I've, I've tasted. Oh it was goodness. absolutely gorgeous. Why did we record um, this before lunch? <laughs> <laughs> I need to track that down. That sounds incredible. I do. I've been trying to work that one out for how to do that one. For Isn't me. that amazing, though? Because you've just described two very different types of experience. And, and that's the amazing thing about food is, like, it can be showy and impressive and almost magic yeah. and then it can be just so simple and fresh and <laughs> i think that's the beauty of of food and the experience it is yeah i mean in the when we went to the amazon rainforest we we fished and caught piranha mm. um and they cooked it and uh it, 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 and it was it, it nice no it was not no. nice and it was very <laughs> earthy and bony and oh, yeah i can imagine um, bony but it was you know there was the tribe that were with us at that point Obviously, we're never going to take a piranha off a fish hook because <laughs> take your finger off. Yeah, it wasn't enjoyable because it wasn't tasting, but it was an amazing experience to talk about mm. and seeing how other you know, cultures are eating or what they're eating. A once in a lifetime. I'm also not fussy, so I can go to a restaurant and say, whatever your chef suggests, bring it, I, I, I eat. There's nothing I don't eat. Uh, there's a restaurant in, in Richmond, which uh, Italian restaurant, which I've still yet to try, and everyone's told me about it, where you don't get a choice. It's literally they say, do you have any dietary requirements it's just fresh whatever they've got whatever they've got fresh and whatever they're cooking it just comes out in small tasters for like two hours mm. so i'd love to like love to go there because that's that's my dream really at the end of the day yeah i think that's such a good concept for a restaurant that was very fashionable back in the 80s mm. where they mm. would choose the menu depending on what was yeah. best that day mm. and uh yeah it'd be exciting if that yeah. comes back into fashion yeah. You say you're not fussy, but how would you feel about a whole heart being served to you now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I had an egg yolk in the middle was some truffle sauce, I'd probably be okay with it, to be honest. Um, yeah. I don't know what my mother was thinking, really. I, I, don't, I don't know there any recipe involving... Yeah, there must have been a deal. It must have been a, a hard week that week for some reason, but uh, yeah. Your life changed forever when your friend secretly entered you into a modelling competition on ITVs this morning and you won, mm. securing a contract with Select Model Management as a prize. When I heard that's how it happened, I wondered if it was the kind of thing that people were always telling you that you should be a model. Is it something that you'd thought about before? No, never thought about it really. And um, like, no, can no, that no, really no be true? Honestly, yeah. Really? No was, one had uh, ever mentioned that you should... I, did, I was at university and it was weird that I, I went on the show and then I I then left university. <laughs> I had about two modules to go, I think. But I just needed to get out. I, did, I wasn't interested in, in then having a degree. Well, I was doing multimedia, computing, marketing. I, was, I, I now know that I don't want to go into this. Um, so, yeah, there was no point to it. I then found out that some of the girls then did say to me, oh, yeah, we, we did always nickname you Model Dave. Oh. <laughs> so I was like, oh, thanks for anyone to tell me that. But, um, so if your friend hadn't done that, yeah. you, do you think you ever would have become a model of your own back? Off my own back, then no, you may have been spotted. Mm. You may have probably got through it that way. But, but you would uh, never have thought. I wouldn't. I don't think so. But who knows? Are you still in touch with the friend that entered you into the? Now and again, yeah, we still yeah. we still are on on Facebook now and again. The funny thing is, is I then got through and I said to her, um, "I said very funny phone call this afternoon from some model agency." <laughs> and I just put the phone down. She went, "No, no, 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 no." I put you in for a competition. 
And then I said, it's fine, but that person now has to come on television with you and uh, introduce themselves. And, and I was like, so Abby, you now have to come on. She okay. said, no. <laughs> I went, hang on, you've put me into this. And she went, I'm not going on television. So I had to go. So I went home, and they had to film somewhere in your either it would have been university at the or the flat or all that. So I went back home, and I literally sat down with my mom and said, "So ITV are coming over tomorrow." And she went, "What?" And I went, "And you've got to pretend that you put me for the competition." And my mum, who's probably even worse, was like, "No, no, no." I was like, "No, no, you can't say no. I'm not. There's no. There's not a choice. You're. You've basically got to do this." Oh my goodness! And your bless poor her. Mom. She, she. She. Yeah. Bless her. She. She did it. That's amazing. I love that your friends were just like, "No." <laughs> you say that it took five years of hard slog before things changed dramatically, and that's thanks to the campaign with Dolce and Gabbana. What did those years of hard slog look like? Did it feel like it was eventually all going to be okay or? no there were a lot of knockbacks knockback after knockback after knockback uh it was um you know you went to the fashion weeks in milan i did a couple i, I did walk in the dolce show but i didn't walk in any i did walk in the valentino show but apart from that you're getting 10 20 castings a day just knockbacks no you didn't get it no you didn't get it even when you got something i was once confirmed to a raft Ren campaign i was packed she just about to go, and this was like before Dolce, so it was going to be the biggest thing I ever did. They cancelled me from like <gasps> literally from going to the airport. They went with someone else. That's cutthroat. It is cutthroat. That's that's business. I guess it feels so personal because you, it, you know, it's it's you. Well, you're, it's, it is personal because it is you. Now, I, 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 I totally get what you mean, but you have to look at it from a joke point of view that I, I have to now cast, we have to cast in Wellware. And... Um, it's nothing to do with the personality. You have a vision, you have a creative, and they have to, like acting, like a role, that person meets that criteria of what you're looking for. Yeah. It's not personal. There are better ways of letting people down. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've got so many, like, funny stories. Um, but when I had, like, it was after, like, Blue, and uh, I just shot the uh, makeup with Scarlett Johansson. Mm. Not makeup for men, so it was a female campaign. <laughs> um, and I, I was the male lead in it. And we then both got cast for an alcohol brand. So I flew out to States, and Scarlett was there, and she said, Dave, have you seen Dolce Gabbana, the makeup? It looks brilliant. The images I said, I have. I have. Fantastic. Can't wait for them to, like, come out. And you heard the room go a little bit weird and silent. Oh, no. And then they said, Dave, why don't you just sit down there for a while? So I sat down for an hour and no one... And normally you'd be off and having makeup and hair and prep and this is the creative. Another half an hour went by. No one speaks to you. And you, you will know in the fashion industry, if no one speaks to you, it means everyone's gutless and they, they, they just can't come up to you and say something is wrong. And then I got a call and I knew who was my agent. And they said, they've pulled you. Oh. And I said, why have they pulled me? And they said, they don't want... The same people in the campaign. This was a complete. This was an alcohol brand, completely different. The same as the other brand, which I, made no sense to me. But anyway, I was like, fine. Do they have to pay me? Yes. I was like, right. Oh, I'm going to rent a nice car and I'll be in yeah. Carmel for two days. I had a lovely time. I drove down the P1 highway on someone else's dollar chamber. And to me, that was great because then I wasn't doing another brand. It was to my idea. I got paid for doing the other brand, mm. uh, the original brand. I. Didn't have to work for that day. Um, not that it was tough with Scarlett Hansen. And <laughs> then I had the opportunity to work for another alcohol, which I did. We okay. then worked for Johnny Walker and Blue Label and got something from it. Mm. So to me, that you turned it around. You turned it around into a win. Yeah. Again, not playing the victim. Turn a bad situation oh. into a good situation, um, if you can, and make a positive out of it. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't seem as bad, but yeah. it, it takes work to do it. Mm. Um, and often you can do that through your attitude. That was in the industry. You know, going back to where we were, it was, yes, there were setbacks. Uh, the Ralph thing did nearly, that was the point. I was like, I've had enough now. So that was, that was the, almost a turning point where I said to Stanley, I've had enough of doing what I'm doing. And I was earning very well, but it was commercial work and it was catalogue and it's not particularly interesting there's a hundred shots a day in nice locations and you're getting paid decently for it but it wasn't i wanted to leave a mark i wanted to create something that i'd seen these great models um create mm. you know tyson baloo when everyone would know he was one of the levi's guys that's who i looked up to and then when we saw so we got to that point with with light blue it was then how do i then uh you know 
smashed this glass ceiling of where male models can go. And that's when it was about branding. It was about your yeah. name. That's where the real hard work began. Yeah. Uh, it was lovely at that point because you weren't struggling. But then you had this platform you had to build. Yeah. And you had to break it down every stereotype and, and, and everything was about you can't, you'll never get that. You're dreaming. The thing about it, on the Arnold Schwarzenegger's new documentary the other day, he was, he was the same. Everything he tried to do, so I want to be the best bodybuilder. No, you'll never do it. I want to go into acting, but I want to be the lead man. No, never going to make it. I want to go into politics. No, don't bother doing it. And every time he said, when everyone said no, it's just more incentive for you to mm. go watch me. People are so negative and, and it, it just says more about their own insecurities and what they think they're capable of. That's what going back to the bullies back in the day was that. That yeah. was exactly it. It's their insecurities. They don't want you to better yourselves and be yeah. even better than them. And there's yeah. anyone to, and when someone says no, it's easier for them to say no. Mm. You have to be a realist, you know, in anything you do. If I, I have people who say, David, how can I get to what, you know, how you did? And I said, well, guys, where do I start telling you here? Because I've been in it for 22 years. This was my first five years of just getting And they're like, five years? And I'm like, yeah, five years. It then took five years to get to here. It then took another five years to... And by that stage, you've lost them. Yeah, you know, people don't want to hear that. Like, no, they don't <laughs> want to hear that. But of course, it, within certain industries, yes, it's hard work. And I won't find anyone that, that hasn't worked hard in this. But... There are models that got taken off the street, they're in the Calvin Klein campaign next week, and then they get Amani, and then they get something else, and then they might get picked to be an actor. It does happen without that. Unfortunately, it didn't with me. Sometimes I, I enjoy the setbacks and I enjoy the journey, actually sometimes more than when I get something. Mm. I'm often in a bit of a bad mood when I get something, and I don't really? know why. My grandfather was the same. You want and want and want something, and then you get it. But then I've learned you just... You take that and you're very happy about it and then you set your next goal. Mm. And your goals will all be, already be in your head anyway. So it's about setting the next one. It's about that challenge. Yeah. Uh, and I'm a very competitive person. So I, it's realised you get something. It's not about sitting on your laurel. It's like, right, where can we take this? So interesting. We're going to pause there and talk okay. about the most important question of the day. Mm. David Gandhi, what is your favourite sandwich? It's, it's very boring. <laughs> No sandwiches. Uh, but I was boring. known for this at junior schools. So I've never had a school dinner, okay, or school lunch. So my mum used to make me a pet lunch, and the reason she made me a pet lunch was because me and my friend Auntie Parker, I'm still friends with, we had to eat something very quickly so we could go and play football. Okay. So school lunches, school dinners was not about sitting around. It was how can we eat this as quick as we can to put our bags down to go and play football. And that's what we did. Um, but I was famous for the smelliest sandwich, which was oh. egg mayonnaise. Oh, David. Fresh egg mayonnaise and cress sandwich. No, you can't eat that in a public space. I, I did not care. <laughs> That's what I realised. I went look back at that and I was like, I don't care. I enjoy it. I don't care what they smell like. Also, that egg sandwich has been sitting in that Tupperware since your mum dropped you off at school. <laughs> Sweating. <laughs> it probably has. And it was like, it was fresh egg. My mum would cook the eggs in the morning. Uh, and then she would chop up little bits of cucumber to put in it and put mayonnaise in it. And that's my favourite sandwich. If you asked Steph, you walked in now and said, what's David's favourite sandwich? She'll go egg sandwich. It is a very good Because she'll go and like, if, I'm, if we go on a road trip, she'll literally hand me an egg sandwich. <laughs> and I'll be like, dum da 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 she, she actually says I hum when I eat because I'm like so happy. And also as a treat, like I wouldn't get a toy, but I'd get something to get something to eat because I love food so much. <laughs> and my mum would buy me scampi fries Ooh, since I was those young. Those are good. So, David, I, I think we've uncovered maybe why people were a bit mean to you at school. You were eating egg mayonnaise sandwiches yeah. and scampi fries. No, I, I, I was never allowed. <laughs> scampi fries were a treat. <laughs> for, probably are, for being good. Those um, are delicious. So, yeah, it was. Yeah, but, but we, we still joke about... Um, Crisps, like a, good, a crisp sandwich. Well, you open up your sandwich, you put your crisps in the sandwich, crush them all up, and then eat that. So and uh, I will still do that today. Yeah. My nan used to make me butt like a my grandma used to have like a doorstop of like fresh white bloomer, and then like an inch of butter. Yeah. <laughs> Chips, and like a chip butty. Oh, and so that is. Uh, but I mean, saying that a fried egg sandwich is a Gandhi family favorite. Um, a fried egg sandwich. 
So, um, and I lived on those so, at university. See, you said you had a boring answer and you didn't. Well, egg sandwich is pretty boring. No, pretty good, no, no, no. So the campaign with Dolce & Gabbana, it was this huge, iconic advert, the 50-foot billboard in Times Square. Did life really change overnight? And was it in the way that you expected that it might? I don't think anyone can expect that level of change. I don't think a campaign has really um, had that much impact. Um, there's probably a few, you know, the Hello Boys, which is the Wonder Bra kind of mm. thing. Um, that probably did... It was the circumstances behind it that the industry was very, very different. At the time, it was about the androgynous guy, skinny guy. So, you know, there was a sexiness to it. There was a masculinity to it. And that hadn't been around. So it, so it instantly made an impact. Um, so weird to think that now, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it has gone slightly that way again in, mm. in many ways. But there's, there's a bit of a better balance now, I think. And... Um, also, it's just a different world. Everything is through social now. This was having to create an image that, as you said, had to be on a billboard and stand out mm. above everything else. And, uh, yeah, it went from the industry, knowing who I was, no one else outside the industry, to the next day having to literally go and bring in PRs and press for, to deal with the press. And, you know, as soon as they found out I was English and not Italian, because everyone yeah. thought she was this Italian model. Uh, then I, of course the I remember and, being very surprised when I first heard you speaking. Yeah, everyone stood like when we were on a event in Capri the other day, and someone asked me, "You went, you're English?" <laughs> I, went, no, I am. I thought you were Italian. I was like, no. Um, so yeah, but it, it did change. Really, it was uh, pre pretty incredible at that time. But then, as I said, that was the challenge. I then didn't want to be known for the guy in the white pants, mm. almost the stereotypical view of then a model. They still had them and I had to break those. And mm. uh, that was, as I said, when the, the, the real work started. But of course, we did the campaign and then we shot the TV commercial and that came out a year later. And then, again, it was building and building and then you know, no one realises that actually we've been going for 17 years now. And it's, it, it's such a clever marketing campaign where people think it's the same, but they realise it, it's a complete love story. Um, and Bianca, who came in in 2012, she was the third girl. Oh. Um, I always say I was, uh, I'm slightly slutty in my light blue camera. I can't remember a few <laughs> girls. Um, they couldn't find the right girl, really, until Bianca came on. She's incredible and we have such a chemistry. And But they turned it so she's the more domineering, which is very clever in the idea of equality, is that she turned uh, that into light blue being. It became more dominant on the male side because of almost me so they needed to turn that around and Bianca became that and she is just the optimum light blue she's Italian she's emotional she's passionate she's incredible to work with um and then you know, now we've changed it to the next one where the campaign's changed to us being a couple and it's gone from the sea to a car to arguing and you know all those typical things that couples do um, and making up and people are still following the story mm. until we talk about it we'll be hopefully going to do next and the story of where that's going to move on let's pause there and talk about the fifth desert island dish what's the dish you eat the most often it's definitely pasta um i don't know how i lived without orzo mm. so good literally discovered about a year not discovered it i've had it before so i've i've been creating just Orzo until Steph says, like, please, not another Orzo dish. <laughs> um, but it's so versatile. Um, and it's good with the babies as well. It's good with the kids as well. Yeah, it, it, it's really, really good. But, yeah, and you can sort of use this you know, sort of summer shrimp cold Orzo and then you can just turn it around to it and just a Pomodoro, again, like Orzo sort of um, um, pasta. So it is definitely pasta dishes that I cook the most. We do, um, I do like a superfood salad. Well, I, I say it's because superfood salad. I call it what's left in the fridge salad. <laughs> Chuck all these ingredients in and then you, like, it's, it's a very healthy salad. Marinate either fish or a chicken in some miso, cut that up on top. So it's a warm salad mixed with some like wild rice. Mm. Um, Steph loves that, but she'll go, what do you want for dinner? And she'll go, salad. And I go, I can't eat salad. So well, And she'll go, oh, I don't want orzo. So I have to. <laughs> I'll then go and cook something else. So um, I will do a big batch of a 
Um, I do a chili sometimes, which would just last us. If I know we've got a busy week, we can literally take two scoops and heat it up, eat it, and that, that sort of lasts us. You recently celebrated 20 years in fashion and marked two decades of experience by launching your eponymous fashion and lifestyle brand, David Gandhi Wellwear, which combines style with well-being. And throughout your career, you've actively campaigned for mental and physical health long before it was sort of captured by the zeitgeist and, and lots of people are talking about that now. But you say that that's always been your belief that clothing shouldn't just make you look good. It's very important that it should make you feel good too. Mm -hmm. Has this always been something that you've thought about doing eventually? The brand, definitely. I mean, I knew I wanted my own label, uh, my own concept to label on something different, uh, something to disrupt. Of course, I didn't know how to do that. Yeah. Um, so that was my eight years with M&S. Mm. It's kind of six years with with the label, which was very successful with David Gandhi Autograph. But I I took myself back to school in many ways. I learned, I was much more involved now, I think, than they thought I was going to be, but I wanted to learn the process. I wanted to learn the process because I knew I was always going to do my own, my own thing. Um, saying that, knowing the process, learning the process, my roles have completely changed well, where being a founder, uh, you speak to other founders, you think there is going to be this lovely point of designing and creative and it, you are then a, so responsible for every part of that company. The fun, lovelier side is taken, you you employ people for that. You, mm. you, you have your designers and and uh, creators and you are there. A lot of it is to do with finance all the time. Yeah. And um, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's what you seem to be doing. And now and again, you get to dive back into it because, of course, I still model for it and... And uh, and part of the creative, but that's very secondary now. Mm. It's so uh, weird, isn't it? And across all industries, like the more successful you get, the further away you get from the thing that you actually really wanted to do in the first place. (laughs) It's why um, there's been lots of chefs, haven't there, that have got to that point of then having lots of restaurants, yeah, and then gone actually this isn't I'm not even cooking, Mm. and then just given it all up and gone back to having a food van or a tiny restaurant saying, yeah. like, this is what I love to do. Yeah, um, yeah. I always joke I'm going to have a florist. I mean, I can put flowers together, of course, but I, that, and that's it. I just have this dream of this beautiful guy. You know when you go into a florist and it's cool and it smells beautiful? Mm. Florist with some dogs and a little coffee shop. It would be the most unsuccessful florist probably ever. I don't think um, so, David. But, yeah. I can see this for you. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be an announcement. So, yeah, and with well-wear, yeah, the, the roles have changed, but... Um, it's still, it's the biggest challenge I've taken on. We haven't done anything by halves. This is a new category of clothing, yeah. <laughs> which is uh, you know, educating people and really taking on fast fashion. Mm. And you're taking on luxury as well because we are we have the style, the quality um, of luxury items, but for much more attainable price. But then we're at the same time, we're saying to people don't buy fast fashion and we're making this attainable. But people have lost, in, in some ways, the way they spend money is they don't put into perspective of they want to buy a t-shirt for the same amount they'll buy a cup of coffee for mm. and if you think of the madness behind that and even now when they said no, 30 pounds for a t-shirt and i was like but i guarantee you've probably had two coffees today so if you don't have coffee for three days you'll have a t-shirt that will last you years yeah now, which makes more sense and if you put it into that perspective it's um you know the work that's gone into making that garment um but again we've we've just had years and years now of fast fashion and disposable fashion and you know we've looked into the psychological side of people feel the effects of throwing stuff away that great item that you love won't last that affects you you throwing that item away and it not being able to be recycled affects you there is a mental you know a psychological side of of all of that and that's what we're saying well we you know our sustainable credentials that we last Mm. And don't have to wash so much because we have antibacterial, anti-odor treatments. Yeah, we have loungewear pajamas that moisturize your skin whilst you're asleep or whilst you're lounging. Um, so, yeah, we haven't done things by ours and it's not easy. No. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's, I don't think I ever have. We're on to the sixth desert island mm. dish. What is your go-to dinner party dish? Only because people request it. And it's really simple, but we have a great butcher's near here, and there's a few of them called the Parsons Nose, mm. and they do the best beef sirloin. And I buy usually over a kilogram of meat, um, sear it, horseradish, in the oven for 22 minutes, and leave it to someone, so it's just as beautiful. The meat is so lovely you could eat it raw. It's like a, you know, you could have a steak tartare. So it's um, you know, 
quite pink in the middle. And then my roast potato was that everyone requests. And they're the easiest things to do. I don't What's know why secret? People there is really no secret. Probably my grandmother and mum said you know, it was parboiled shake. Um, they use lard, they use goose fat. I use olive oil and a lot of olive oil. Um, one, for the health factor, and two, it crisps them up. You have to use a lot of it, and you're virtually deep fat frying, yeah. for totally honest. <laughs> That's why they're so crispy. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to get all that right. And then, um, But I do do a horseradish dauphinoise as well um, to mm. go with that. And everyone does seem to love that, of yeah. course. Uh, I can't imagine from, why. That sounds yeah. absolutely delicious. And uh, just buttered veg, whatever we have on the side. But uh, yeah, that, that is a go-to, really easy dish to, to, to kind of do. And do you make okay. puddings? Do you eat puddings? I do eat puddings. I, I eat everything. So I've invested in a company called, called Tastily. And they, um, they are pre-prepared meals delivered to your door. So it's the go-to between sort of a HelloFresh where you still have to develop everything yourself. Mm. It's not a ready meal. They're prepared by chefs and they're separated. But, well, some of them aren't. Some of them aren't. Some of them you can just literally whack in the oven. So I had to go and taste everything yesterday. <gasps> Oh. And it's a tough job. Yeah, Someone's it was. Like, we, were, we were sort of filming everything, and they were like, "This is our new burrito," and like we were filming it, and then um, the new ramen and everything else. And I was eating and eating, and then <laughs> they even said to me, "David, we've got a lot to get through." So I don't think they'd seen anything like it. Uh, like Joey, I was like literally Joey Tribbiani from Friends. I was like, "You people are about to see something very special." <laughs> I was just like consuming uh, food, and uh, yeah, so I eat everything. Pudding wise. I'm not, I, there's a big difference between cooking and baking. Mm. And baking is quite uh, accurate, I always kind of like, Phil. Um, more scientific. It is more scientific, which I love the idea of cooking. You don't, That doesn't taste right. I'm going to chuck something in, chuck a little bit more salt and everything. You can't really do that. Um, so, yeah, I do a, a sticky toffee pudding with mm. three different sauces, oh. um, which is always delicious. Wait, what are the different sauces? So there's one that you put on which seeks into it. There's one that you get it out, and they're all based around a caramelized sauce, and the last one is a chocolate caramelized sauce that you put over the top. They, it, that one takes quite a while. Uh, it, and it takes um, a bit of concentration to get them right. And I have tried to make it when I've been a bit drunk and completely forgotten. <laughs> oh, no. Like literally I've got through and gone, I don't think I put uh, <laughs> the main ingredient into this one. Uh, it still tastes okay. And then, yeah, the easiest one is I've always got a panettone. And so if people come around, I go, I'll quickly just whop them up a uh, bread and butter pudding and panettone. And I put the secret of that as well because there's always Nutella. We have children. You can put chocolate and it all melts into this chocolate custard which is always delicious yeah that sounds really good on desert island dishes we've got a cookbook corner so i'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook so my most treasured one he's a friend jason atherton mm. now jason atherton is that level of cooking i couldn't even i've read this book yeah i got to like the first five pages and went thanks jason you've signed it to my good friend and that's why it's so wonderful i couldn't even attempt yeah that's the next level of Cooking and chefing. I, I will leave to them. Do you ever follow recipes? So what I do when I've got an idea of what I want to cook, um, I will then go and look at a number of recipes. I will take parts of the different <laughs> recipes. I will then put them together and then I will test it and then put the flavors in that I want or I think it's missing. Yeah. Um, so Basically it's a, a professional recipe developer. <laughs> I do, I, yeah, yeah, I do have to say if there is a cheat and I want something to taste great and it's a bit, Jamie Oliver is still the man. He really, really is. And uh, that's because he makes things very simple for people, I think, to try to do it. He did this, uh, he does a, it hasn't been around for a while. I couldn't find the recipe last time, but it's a fish pie and it's not a normal fish pie. Yeah, my mum will make fish pie and you boil the fish and the milk and eggs and it's not that. It's you put all these fresh ingredients, kind of raw fish and everything into one dish, mm. grate all the vegetables in, cheese, yeah, um, that's tomatoes, one with grated carrot and the spinach. Grated carrot. That and is a good fish pie. And it's lovely. And, mm. yeah, so I've sort of taken that and I've now realised, and I do it with, I love tomatoes, so I've made it into more, like, more, more tomatoes. I've changed the cheese. I, um, I add chilli to ours as well. So adapting those recipes, and I think, James, you can kind of do that. Yeah. Um, but there are so many you know, great chefs. And uh, baking, I just, I've got my few dishes and I'm not interested in, although I, I would love to be able to make like cakes. I, I love modeling things out of Play-Doh with my children. And, you know, I make like all these different animals out of Play-Doh. And I think I'd love to, but that's not baking. I mean, that someone else would have to do the sponge. Mm. I just would love the idea of creating something else really around the cake. So yeah. I'm seeing 
a florist with a cake shop attached to it is your future venture. Yeah. <laughs> no one buying the flowers and me eating all the cakes. It's not, I've seen business plans and I don't think this one might work out. A recipe for yeah. success. We're on to the final seventh desert island dish. What is the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island? I would have to say... It would be a spaghetti vongole. Mm. If you said now, if you could have anything, I would say I'd like to be in Italy on the coast. Spaghetti vongole, maybe a uh, burrata to start, fresh basil, tomatoes. Again, really, really simple. Um, That would be it. I would be very, very happy with that. So good. Yeah. My mum does this. The other thing I I could probably say is my mum does, and it's a family recipe, it's a mince pie. And it's, my mum makes the pastry and it's mince and vegetable stock and vegetables. It's a bit like a shepherd's pie, but it's in a pie. That with roast potatoes. If I go back for my birthday, my she would get it for dinners. And I said, no, no, mince pie. Because, <laughs> you know, there's a new restaurant in Suffolk. I think we should go there. I go, if they do your mince pie, we'll go there. <laughs> oh. A home-cooked dinner is my treat, really. And so a uh, mum's saying, so, uh, yeah, that that's what I, I, I love, really. So... I, I would eat all of it, like, for my last dinner. Yeah, it's your last meal. You might as well fill up. Bring, bring it on, yeah. <laughs> that must make your mum so happy that you'd rather have that than go out. It probably does, yeah. My partner probably not so much. <laughs> she was like, can we go to Scots? I was like, should we go home and just have a mince pie? Um, I mean, I love sushi. I love Asian food. Um, and it, it, I think we've got to that, you know, that, that point of going to it, and, and we presume because we're paying so much money it has to be. And sometimes I actually say, oh, well, how was dinner? like at this restaurant you're paying a extortion amount for. And people go, oh, wonderful, wonderful. And I go, what do you have? They go, I can't really remember. I go, but it wasn't good then. If you can't remember, it wasn't good. I was in Italy the other day and I came back and I had to stay in Naples uh, to get the early flight. And all I wanted to do was actually get room service. Um, you wanted a club sandwich. I wanted a club sandwich. <laughs> I actually wanted some just, I thought, pasta, go to bed. Um, I got there very late. And I, I don't think someone has stayed at this hotel since about 1987. <laughs> room service, they sort of just laughed at. Um, and anyway, so I ventured out into Naples. And of course, this sounds blasphemous being in Italy. I, I had pasta and there was the beautiful Italian birds. They were very, very busy and I wanted somewhere quiet. And I passed this little um, Asian Japanese place. You ordered through this screen <laughs> on your table. Um, and it was, it was goza and poke bowls and ramens. And of course, I just ordered everything and a few drinks. Um, and I... First time I was like, this is one of the most delicious Asian foods I've had for ages. Wow. And got to the kind of, I didn't, they don't tell you how much it is. It was 27 euros, the mm. whole bill. Now, I will remember that place and I would go, and when I'm in Naples, now you're in Naples, you should be Italian food. But it was spectacular. Mm. It was lovely and just showed for 27 euros of what you could get. But it was just delicious. Yeah. And it's so often those like undiscovered little places that you just stumble yeah. across that are yeah. the most exciting. They are. They really, really are. David, those were your desert island dishes. Thank you so much. Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of desert island dishes. Don't forget you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast, particularly if you're listening on iTunes. It really does make such a difference. It boosts the show in the charts and helps others to find it, which is great. If you don't already, come and follow me on Instagram at Desert Island Dishes and you can sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of different recipes at desertislanddishes.co. Thank you again to our season sponsor, Lloyd's Bank, and I will see you next week. Thank you so much for listening. Bye.